open our Bibles now, if you would please, to 1 John chapter 4. This evening we're going to begin with the 13th verse, and I'll begin a message tonight that I planned for four messages to get us through down to the end of this chapter. And the subject is confidence in our confession. So we'll read these scriptures together in 1 John chapter 4, beginning at verse 13, and read to the end of the chapter. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Whenever we start one of these new sections in First John, I feel like I'm, I'm just a broken record. Because every time we come to a new section here, I'm always t- telling you about that John is dealing with the issue of assurance. It seems like almost at every verse, in some way or another, John is going to bring us back to that theme. And so whenever we hear terms or use terms like confidence or, or uh, sureness or trust, the theme here is always, how do we know that we truly are the children of God? And the question of, uh, of assurance and proof of our salvation is not a subject that's peculiar to John. In fact, we happen to be in a passage in Matthew on Sunday mornings in Matthew chapter 10, uh, a passage about discipleship. And when we read the th- kinds of things that Jesus demands of his people there, we just sit and wonder, are we ready for that? Can we actually meet the demands of Christ? I mean, we're used to today in hearing about an easy Christianity, about a gospel that really requires no commitment, one in which you find no repentance from sin, no real sorrow about sin, a gospel that never says anything about complete surrender to Christ. It's a gospel that requires that we receive Christ as our Savior, but not as our Lord. And so when you come to passages like Matthew chapter 10, it sort of leaves you flustered and uneasy because you look at that where Jesus speaks of persecution and hatred and loss of your family and even the willingness to take up a cross and die if necessary. Uh, Jesus is telling us in that passage that if you're not willing to do that, if, if you haven't made a commitment that's really sincere enough to do all of those things, then the obvious conclusion of that particular passage is that you're not really a Christian. A person that is a true Christian has a faith in him that makes such a radical change that he's willing to forsake all to follow Christ. And if that kind of commitment is not in you, then saving faith is not present. Now, the Apostle John was in the presence of Jesus when he spoke those words. He's one of the 12 apostles that Jesus called out and spoke specifically to in Matthew chapter 10. And so we would expect that when John begins to teach the same things that 
Jesus taught, that he wasn't going to hold back. I mean, he's not going to water this thing down and make the commitment to Christ to be anything less than what Jesus said it was. And so he gives us here this constant repetition. He doesn't stop at one time saying this. He goes over and over and over this again. He's relentless in his pursuit that we need to know that we truly are in the faith, and we know that by all of those tests that we have talked about in the past few weeks. Now, he says all that. I mean, keep saying that throughout these first four chapters. When you get into chapter 5, it will be the same, and you come right down to that, that one verse there. That's the theme of the entire epistle, which is verse 13 in chapter 5. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So he's writing about a confident faith, one that's demonstrated by belief in correct doctrine and obedience and obeying Christ's commands. But chiefly, the one that he's dealing with here is love for the brethren. And that comes from the new nature that's implanted in us by God. Now, as we tackle this last part of chapter 4, then we're still, still dealing with assurance. How can we have confidence of our confession in Christ? How do we know that it's real? Well, verse 13, we looked at last week, and we know it's real because God has given us his spirit. We see the operation of God's spirit in our lives. And in that last message, I spent a good deal of time talking about that, about fruit that is produced by the indwelling spirit of God. Well, there's another way or other ways that you can say that. You can look at it this way, that the footprints of the Holy Spirit are evident in our life. Because wherever the Holy Spirit goes, there's evidence of where he's walked. You know that he's been there. He is there. Or you can put it in another way, like Jesus said in John chapter 3, where he was speaking to Nicodemus, and he talked about how the Spirit comes on us at regeneration. And he said, you don't know. He said, the Spirit's like the wind. You don't know where he comes from or where he goes, just like the wind. You don't know how it got there or where, he get, where it goes, but you know that it's been there because you feel the, the evidence of the wind. And the same thing with the, with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the last verses here, in this last section, I want to talk to you in these next few weeks about confident faith. Faith is not blind trust. We have an objective faith that does accomplish God's purpose in our lives. And if, that, if the faith that we have does not accomplish God's purpose, then it's not a real faith. The Scripture says the just shall live by faith. We live and we demonstrate faith uh, in our daily lives. Now, first of all, then, I, I want to... This is where I'm going to spend our time tonight, just, just barely getting into this, uh, into this uh, first part of this. And true saving faith is, first of all, manifested by belief in Jesus. By belief in Jesus. Now, he says in verse 15, "...whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God." Now, that the, these statements seem obvious, but what I've tried to tell you in the previous sermons, in many previous sermons, that the simple statement, confess that Jesus is the Son of God, is much deeper and much more profound than it actually appears on the surface. There, there's little disagreement about this statement on the surface. And, and uh, just a few months, we'll see that. Christmas will be here, and there will be Christmas shows on television, There'll be nativity scenes wherever they're still legal. 
the Pope will have a Christmas Mass, and NPR and PET will play Christmas shows. They'll show the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Uh, Christmas celebrations will be shown from all over the world. And whether it's in song or in sermons, you're going to hear many times, Jesus is the Son of God. But John is not talking here about this rote, sentimental, half-hearted statements about a sweet little baby that's born in a manger and a tear-jerking story about a mother that uh, couldn't find a place to have her baby but in, in a barn. He's not talking about that kind of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God is a statement that is power packed with meaning. And most people really don't know the implications of how powerful a statement that is because if they really knew it, you'd never see a Christmas show on television. If they really knew this and people knew the exclusivity of Christianity and the meaning of the statement, Jesus is the Son of God, you'd never see another nativity. At least not one that hasn't been vandalized almost immediately upon erecting it. You see, the real Jesus that the world has, is, or that the world sings about, the, or the Jesus that they sing about and, and talk about is not the real Jesus most of the time that we find in the Scripture. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus was despised of men. He was rejected by men. Every kindred, every tribe, every nation rejects him. He's intolerant of their sins. He's not inclusive of all religion. He, he's, religions, he stands at the top alone and he said, I am the only way that you're ever going to get to heaven. And if you don't come my way, then you're forever condemned to the fires of hell. And so when John says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God, he's not including this huge block of artificial Christians that have no idea of who Jesus is and what he really came to do. So we're going to start with that, and that is, what did Jesus come to do? And here, under your first heading, is the work of the Savior. The work of the Savior. Our assurance is grounded in the work of the Savior. What did he do? I mean, what is the work of Christ that causes us to have that assurance that we truly know God and that he lives in us? Well, I want to mention just a few things to you tonight that... I think John means by this statement, and I don't believe that we can plumb the depths of any of these things that we're going to talk about. I mean, they're all a sermon in themselves. But I want to give you some idea of what's considered here when John says that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, first of all, number one, he is the Savior. I mean, the work of the Savior is to be the Savior. Verse 14, he says, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Well, that seems to be fairly fundamental, that the Savior must be someone who saves. And I hadn't planned to get into this, but it, it's, it's obvious that there are many people who don't think the Savior can actually save. And I don't, I don't mean that. I mean that he comes to try to do something that he can't actually do because some people die and go to hell. So therefore, Jesus is not, must not really be a Savior. But he is the Savior of all that he intends to save. You can trust me on that. He does save. So the work of saving is done by the Savior. And this is so fundamental that this is really the first time in the epistle that John even mentions the word Savior. You ever notice that? There's not another time in this epistle that John mentions the word, mentions that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now the concept is certainly there. We see it in the second verse of chapter 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only. 
but for the sins of the whole world. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned the word propitiation tells us immediately that there's something wrong. There's something wrong between us and God. Wrath is involved here. God's wrath is involved. And if we wanted to put it in, say, R.C. Sproul's terminology, Jesus came into the world to save us from God. To save us from God. Now, that seems like a very harsh statement at first, but it's really a profound statement of God's love. God is full of wrath because of the terrible sins that we've committed against him. And while we were in that terrible condition, while we were criminals against God, God loved us enough that he sent Christ to do something about it, something to take his wrath away. But sometimes we act like we're the ones that are offended. We say, do you mean God expects me to do this? And God expects me to keep that commandment? God wants to infringe upon my freedom and my free will? I'm offended at such a suggestion. Well, you missed something then. Because you're the creature. Did you know that? You're the creature. He's the creator. You are in subjection to him. You've sinned against him. You have offended him to such magnitude that the only way that his wrath could ever be turned away was for him to do something about himself. And so he sent God, or sent his son to die for the horrible crimes that are committed by others. He is the savior of the world. And that's what the apostles preach concerning Christ. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles said, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree, talking to the Jews. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now here's a little little piece of trivia for you. Did you know that the apostle John only used the phrase Savior of the world twice in all of his writings. In all of his writings, he only used that twice, Savior of the world. One time is right here in 1 John chapter 4, and the other time is in the story of the Samaritan woman in the Gospel of John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, it says, So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, I just have to mention as we go by there what he means by Savior of the world. The Samaritans said that. So what they meant was, he's the Savior of Jews, and he is the Savior also of Gentiles. He saves all different kinds of people. That's just what it means when it says he's the savior of the world. And so when you see that John uses that phrase, and it's only twice. In all of his writings, he he only uses it twice. So you know that when he uses it, he's going to pack it with all the meaning that's intended in that phrase. And what John does not intend to say is that Jesus Christ came to be your assistant to help you to get to heaven. And that's by far the most prevalent view, most prominent view about the work of Christ, that Jesus came to help us to live a better life, to live a good life, to give us some pointers about how we can get to heaven, and we get to heaven with Christ's help. That's how we get there. Well, if that's what you think by the word Savior, then you've defanged it of its meaning, so to speak. You certainly don't have John's meaning. If what he meant, if that's what he meant by Savior, then Jesus miserably failed. He miserably failed because man was already a total failure at keeping commandments. Adam couldn't do it when he, was, when he was innocent, when he didn't even have a sinful nature, when he was in a perfect environment. He still sinned. 
God gave commandments to Israel on Mount Sinai. And before God could ever finish even writing the last tablet, the people were down in the valley worshiping a golden calf. People are miserable failures at keeping commandments. And so what good would it do for Jesus to come to this earth and to preach a sermon like the Sermon on the Mount and raise the standard so high to absolute perfection that it makes it exponentially more impossible to keep them, keep the commandments. I mean, there's nothing that's more discouraging than to have Jesus come and live a perfect life and say, here's what you need to do to be saved. Just be like me. Well, that doesn't make Jesus the Savior of the world. It multiplies God's wrath. It intensifies God's wrath. I mean, it was already impossible to get out from under God's wrath. And so a Savior like that doesn't do anything more than just bring hell right to our doorstep. Well, that brings me to work number two, the work of Christ. What else does he do or what what does he do because of this? Well, number two, he is our obedience. He's our obedience. Now, the issue concerning God's wrath has always been this, obedience. That's why God didn't want Adam to eat of the tree. He said, obey me, and Adam didn't. The issue has always been obedience, and that's why God is angry. And God is so wrathful that he's at the point of destroying us because of disobedience. So God gave his law, and he said, this is the way that I expect you to live. But when he gave the law, he gave it to an already sinful imperfect race. And so simple logic would tell us that God never gave the law with the intention of saving us. He already knows we can't keep, we can't even keep what we know to be right even when we didn't have the law. That's what Paul said in Romans. We, we can't do it. And so he doesn't expect us to be saved by it. No one can ever be saved by keeping the law because we can't do it perfectly. And furthermore, the, the law says do this. And it says, do this, and it says, do this, and keep on doing this. It's positive in that command to always keep doing. But if that was all that it was, if all that it said was keep doing, and there wasn't anything else, then that would be a law that doesn't have any teeth. So it's not just the positive command to keep doing. There's a negative side to the law. And what's the negative side? Judgment. Judgment for not doing what God says. And so you have a negative aspect of the law. The negative aspect is judging for not keeping the law. So what does the Scripture say about this then? Well, Galatians 3 verse 10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So we're cursed for imperfect obedience... But then along comes another one of these magnificent aspects of God's love and his grace. He knows that we can't keep the law. It's impossible for us to do, so we're we're condemned. So what he did was to allow a substitute to be our obedience. And that substitute couldn't be just a man. He can't be like we are in that respect. I mean, even if it was possible for a person to live a perfect life, the only thing that he could do is satisfy God for one life. That's his own. And that's impossible. But if he could do it, he still wouldn't have satisfied God because he has another problem. He has a sinful nature. And how is he going to get rid of his sinful nature? You can't go to heaven with a sinful nature. You, you have to be like God. You can't get into heaven with your sins, with the possibility of even sinning. So man can't do this. So man's out of the picture as far as satisfying God. But God, in his marvelous grace, sent his own son in the flesh 
to live a perfect life, to render perfect obedience to the law, and he earned the righteousness by which we are justified with God. Now, that is the purpose of the incarnation. Jesus must be the God-man because he has to be able to satisfy that positive demand of, of keeping the law perfectly in order to get that righteousness to give to us, but he also has to be able to satisfy the negative side of it, the transgression of the law. So his sacrificial death takes care of that. So he's able to do both, a perfect life and a sacrificial death. He obeys the law, which in turn becomes our obedience by faith, and he took away the penalty that we justly deserve. Now going back to verse number 2 in chapter 4, you'll see then that John teaches that a person must believe that Jesus came in the flesh. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And so if you truly are a believer, then you accept, you understand this necessity of this very important point of the incarnation. Christ has to become man in order to satisfy the law's demand for obedience. Now, going back to Galatians, Paul says in the 11th verse, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. So the way that Christ's obedience is appropriated to us is by faith in him. That's the heading of the entire first point, belief in Jesus. So our belief in Jesus comprehends all of those statements that I've just made. So you can't just noddingly approve that Jesus is the Savior, that he is the Son of God. You have to take everything that that statement implies. But we're not through yet here because we've just got the obedience part down. Christ obeyed the law. That's the positive aspect. That's been settled. But the negative is not done because judgment is the negative and the law demands that a penalty has to be paid. So the third thing that Jesus came to do in his work was to take our punishment. He took our sins away. He's the Savior of the world because he took our punishment. What is God's punishment? God's punishment is death. God said to Adam, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. We all know that Adam was the prototype for all people that came after. And Adam didn't die physically. Not at that time when he ate of the tree, but immediately he died spiritually. And I'm not going to go into all of that now, but physical death is part of the curse of eating of the tree. Physical death is only one manifestation of the whole bigger problem. And the bigger problem is that Adam died spiritually. Physical death only has a temporal consequence, but spiritual death has eternal consequences. And the eternal consequences are everlasting punishment. So man can't satisfy that penalty of God's punishment because, folks, he can never stay in hell long enough to remove the guilt of sin. Now, I'm going to talk more about that on, on Sunday. I'm not sure it's Sunday morning or Sunday night. It's probably going to be Sunday night this time. But, but I'm going to talk a little bit more about this particular issue. But you think about this for just a moment. If you commit a crime such as stealing, are you ever not guilty of that crime? I mean, once you've committed it, you're always guilty. I mean, if you make restitution, that's, you may do that. You might serve a required sentence that the law puts upon you, but you can't change the fact that you did it. There's no way you can change the fact you did it. Now, you might not feel as guilty because you've served a sentence, 
but the fact that you did it can't be changed. Hell is everlasting punishment because nothing has ever been done to take away the sinner's guilt. But what Christ did in reconciling us to God is not only to propitiate God or to satisfy God's wrath, but he also did this. He expiated our sins. And that's a word you might want to remember. We've talked about it sometime before. Expiation. And that simply means to take away the guilt of sin. So not only does he satisfy God's wrath through propitiation, but he expiates our sin by taking away our guilt. Now, some people say, well, justification means just as if I had never sinned. And that's really too simplified of a definition to describe justification. But at least in this point, it's absolutely true that when we're reconciled to God, we stand before God without guilt. Now, there's no doubt that we personally committed the crime, but God doesn't look at us personally. Instead, he looks at the substitute. And the guilt is his because our sins were taken by Christ. And so it's as if Christ went into the flames of hell and he stayed there forever. And the suffering that inflicted on him was inflicted on him at the cross was the pouring out of the full fury of God's wrath. And so when the scripture says he's the savior of the world, it has both of those meanings, propitiation and expiation. But then the work of Christ gets even, is even more extensive than that because number four, he is our intercessor. What's an intercessor? Well, an intercessor is a mediator between two parties. So Christ is actually the link between us and the Father. Intercession is the function of a priest, and the Scripture says that Christ is our great high priest. So how does he bring us to God? Well, in the Old Testament, the high priest would make animal sacrifices. And he took the blood of those sacrifices, and he went into the Holy of Holies, and he sprinkled that blood on the mercy seat. And as we've studied before here in 1 John and other places, that mercy seat has the same meaning as propitiation, same word. And so propitiation then is made by the blood that's sprinkled on the mercy seat. Now in Hebrews, the scripture says that Christ made propitiation by blood, but it wasn't the blood of an animal sacrifice because it says that kind of blood can never take away sin. It only takes away sin representatively. And the next year, another sacrifice has to be made, and it has to be done over and over and over again because that kind of blood can't take away sin. But that blood represented something that could. It looked forward to something that could. And Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 9, But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So Christ intercedes with God on the basis of his own blood. Now what Christ didn't do was to take his blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and just leave it there until the time that we receive Christ by faith. No, the Bible says that he went into heaven to continually plead that blood as a perpetual covering for sin. And this is why John says in, in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The advocate is the intercessor. And that verse actually means he is the righteous one. The righteous one 
is the one who intercedes for us. So, so his blood continues to cover our sins. And because of that, the scripture says we have the right to approach the throne of grace. It says we have grace to help in time of need. And we approach God only on the basis of the blood of Christ. That has to be applied as a covering for sin. And that's really why it's utter blasphemy to say that we could come to God by going around Jesus Christ. Because it's the same as saying that Christ's blood is not needed. Now, the sacrifice might be good for some, but I don't need it. It's not really necessary at all. But Savior of the world includes that work of Christ's intercession, which actually grants us access to the Father. Now, we're touching on all these things in a very limited way because every one of those statements is rich and deep with meaning. I said a moment ago, one sermon, maybe ten sermons, could never cover everything that needs to be said about this. But there's still more, and we don't have time to keep going down, so we'll just list some more. Number five, he is our purification. I'm not speaking here of initial salvation, not when we first come to Christ. When you come to Christ, you believe in him, you're justified from your sins, and you're righteous with God, and by faith you are justified, and you're sanctified at that point. Now, here's a very important thing. Our sanctification is as much as guaranteed, it's as much guaranteed as justification. And so we don't need to worry here about receiving Christ as Lord, that somehow that's going to confuse justification and sanctification. Actually, that's what non-lordship people believe. You're just messed up. You don't understand the difference between justification and sanctification. But one is just as much guaranteed as the other. And we're going to, I tell you, we're going to hit this, the lordship salvation many, many times in these next few weeks here in this passage and also in the book of Matthew. But our purification is something that has to take place on a daily basis. This is not the one-time thing, not the one-time uh, act of sanctification that, that, it's, that it, when we're justified also. But this is something that has to be ongoing. And First John 1, verse number 9, tells us that this is necessary in order for us to continue in fellowship with God. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that verse is not talking about our justification. It's speaking about sanctification. That Christ comes to live in us in order to continually purify us from sin. Well, if you, if you pay attention and you kind of understand what's going on here and see the big picture of this, you might wonder, well, well doesn't all of that confuse the work of the, of the Godhead? I mean, you're talking about things here that the Holy Spirit does and sanctification and so forth, so aren't you confusing that? I mean, how, how do you differentiate between the work of the Son and the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, if you're able to do that in this aspect of it, then you're doing more than I can do. Here's what Jesus said. He said in John 14:16, pay very close attention, especially when you get to the end of it, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of the truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye knoweth him, or ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. But then he says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. So how are you going to split that out? If you can divide those two, then you can divide the Father and the Son when Jesus said, I and my Father are one. But but it gets deeper than that even. I mean, talking about about 
confusing the work of the Godhead because in Philippians 2.13, there it says, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So now you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all doing the same thing. And so you have some people who say, Well, you know, the Bible doesn't teach the Trinity. But what else is that but declaring the Trinity? Our text verse in, in 1 John 4 declares the Trinity. Verse 13 says, Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That's the Trinity. And what the Bible is teaching us here that through and through the entire Godhead takes care of your salvation. And some people are still stuck back there with the idea that Christ is the assistant to help me to get to heaven. Well, you've got to give up that idea. Give it up completely because you can't have any part of this. Paul said, if God be for us, that means he doesn't need you. He doesn't need anybody else. If God is for us, that's all you need. So he takes care of it all. Well, we're getting close on time here. And when you see... We haven't even begun to get through the first part of this, this, this passage. But let's give, let me give you another one of Christ's works that, that's, that's essential for our belief in Jesus. Number six is that he is our glorification. Now follow me. If you follow me closely here, then you know that we've talked about some really major doctrines tonight. And although I haven't stated it this way, Christ is our justification. And he is our sanctification. And I will state it here. He is our glorification. You see, there's only one work that Christ has left to do to complete his salvation in us. What he has to do is to change this body from what it is to what he planned it to be. Now, you've already been transformed in your spirit. I mean, your soul your soul and spirit... And again, I'll say what I said a few, some time ago. I'm a dichotomous in this, in this position. The soul and spirit mean the same thing. But God has actually transformed your soul. You've been born again. You've been justified from sin. You have been sanctified positionally. But your sanctification is not complete until the sinful body is completely renewed. So Christ has one work left to do in salvation. And that's to change the sinful body. Now listen to Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. For our conversation, that is, citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it might be fashioned like unto its glorious body, according unto the working whereby is able even to subdue all things to himself. Now I would challenge you to find a grander statement in the Bible than that that our bodies are going to be perfect, just like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that we're going to be forever delivered from the pollution of sin. Every harm that sin has ever caused us is going to be far removed from us. And the body of flesh will be transformed, and we will receive a new body. When does that happen? Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear... Then shall you also appear with him in glory. Now, do you know what that one means? Well, it means that probably I should have added point number seven. And then we'd have the Bible's number of completion. 
Because the work of Christ is to come again and take us to be to go home with him. So we could say number seven, if you want to pencil in there, in there somewhere, is that he's our transporter. That's another one of his works. He transports us into heaven. He's coming back to receive us unto himself. So do you see, you see how much meaning is in this statement? John says, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth him in him and he in God. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. And there are very, very few people that consider all of the works that I've just told you about, and that's just a part of it. And they say, sure, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus said, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a whole lot of meaning in Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time you've given us to be together tonight and what a rich passage of Scripture that we have before us. We, we simply cannot do justice to your word. John has said so much in just short little statements that we, we are just baffled trying to comprehend all the meaning that he has for us. Oh, we thank you for your people that listen intently and and with encouragement in what you say in your word. Lord, bless our people. Help us to really know deep down inside that when we have made a confession of Christ, what that really means, what it really means to know Christ. And all of these things are essential for us to know, to really understand what you've done for us in sending Jesus into the world to die for sin. Bless us tonight, Lord. Thank you again. For this time, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.